America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Another great week, another great new start for a Congress that suddenly seems to be, dare I say it, functioning. Uh, there is a compromise that has been put forward. They now have 10 Republicans, 10 Democrats. They have the votes they need, assuming that everybody holds firm to get this framework through the Senate, and that means through the Congress, because the House has already passed a gun reform bill. Is this bill an outrage? Will it strip people of their Second Amendment rights? Is it something that Americans should fear or cheer? Uh, we will get to that on the Michael Medved Show. We'll be speaking to uh, Professor John Yu, who's one of the leading conservative legal scholars in the country over at the University of California at Berkeley. He is uh, also a former official and advisor with the uh, Bush administration and a member of the conservative Hoover Institution. We'll talk to him also about the hearings continuing. Uh, last time we were hearing a little bit about the big riot and the big lie. Today we heard a great deal about the big ripoff. What does a big ripoff have to do with January 6th? What does it have to do with Donald Trump? It has to do with literally hundreds of millions of dollars that have been raised based on ridiculous election claims where it has now become increasingly clear, and you can say it without real fear of contradiction. Most of the top people in the Trump administration, his chief advisors, his attorney general, uh, his campaign manager had told the president that the claims of electoral fraud, the claims of a stolen election, were ridiculous. They were beep, as uh, Bill Barr, his attorney general, famously said. By the way, it's fascinating to me how many people have used that BS term following the leadership of attorney general Barr. Uh, speaking of the impact of media and of media language on all of us, there's an amazing thing from uh, Bill Maher, who I've known for years. And I'm, I'm kind of increasingly proud to have known Bill Maher for such a long time. He just gave a, um, some remarks that are shockingly reminiscent of my book from 1992, Hollywood vs. America. Uh, talking about the role of uh, media imagery, of normalizing of violence, of normalizing of brutality, having an impact on America's kids. Yeah, this is uh, Bill Maher, who insists he is not a conservative, but he is certainly sounding more and more like one. Uh, we will also be talking to somebody who's been a conservative his whole life and somebody who's functioned in Hollywood who has a new movie about a really revolutionary subject. It's a subject that disturbs a lot of people. I mean, really, really disturbs a lot of people. On the left, uh, the subject is homeschooling. Kirk Cameron has a new homeschooling movie uh, that is going to be airing just two nights tonight and uh, tomorrow. And uh, we will talk about the new homeschooling film uh, coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. 
Uh, before we go to the hearings this morning, because there was a great deal of fascinating material from a great many people who have been part of the Trump administration and actually who have continued to work with President Trump in the days uh, since his presidency and since, the obviously, the January 6th riots. But uh, the, the big news today, really, is the, uh, the idea that they have a deal, a bipartisan deal on uh, gun reform that made its way through painful negotiations involving 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats. And the 10 Republicans, by the way, uh, people say, oh, they're rhinos. Okay. The 10 Republicans who are participating are actually among the most distinguished mainstream leaders of the Republican Party. And by the way, Mitch McConnell, in his guarded statement about this framework, he says, depending on how this bill turns out to be written, he sounds like he is open to supporting it, which would be pretty amazing. Okay, the uh, Republicans who signed on here... The uh, New York Times reports it's an indication of the political risks Republicans see in embracing even modest gun safety measures. None of the 10 who endorsed Sunday's deal was facing voters this year. The group included uh, four Republican senators who were leaving Congress at the end of the year, Roy Blunt of Missouri, uh, one of the Senate leaders, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Rob Portman of Ohio, he'll be sorely missed, and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, also very sorely missed. And then there are five who are not up for re-election for another four years. John Cornyn of Texas, a former uh, Republican whip in the Senate, former member of the Supreme Court for the state of Texas, uh, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, who is quickly becoming really one of the most admired people in the uh, Re Republican caucus in the Senate. Uh, Susan Collins of Maine, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, and Mitt Romney of Utah, who also embraced the deal. He will face voters in 2024. And uh, Mr. Cornyn said, I work closely with my colleagues to find an agreement to protect our communities from violence while also protecting law-abiding Texans' right to bear arms. And that's what he said in a statement on Twitter. There are also statements on Twitter uh, basically wishing death and destruction to everybody who was signed onto this bill. What does it do? In brief, it incentivizes states to pass red flag laws. It uh, also closes what is known as the boyfriend loophole, which is that in many states, you, you can uh, invoke red flag laws. You can invoke measures against people who are dangerous if there's a temporary restraining order against them and uh, against them and they happen to be living with someone or married to someone. But if you get the same kind of order against someone who's just a boyfriend, who's not living in your domicile and is not the parent of a child of yours and never has gotten a wedding license, if it's just somebody that you know who is threatening you, it's much harder to take guns away from that person. And sometimes when there is clear violence uh, that is being threatened, then uh, that's important. There also is, and this is something the Republicans insisted on as part of the bill, 
expanding mental health aid, uh, providing money for more school security, and greatly strengthening and um, making more efficient uh, background checks on people applying for weapons. It also makes a difference between people applying for background checks, people applying for weapons, or the right to hold weapons if they are under 21. Doesn't make it impossible. There is no ban on assault weapons. There is no raising the buying age for assault weapons. A lot of people had favored that kind of change, but that's not in this bill. But what is in the bill is uh, a significant tightening, making more rational, making more efficient, making more functional a uh, system of gun regulation, the biggest change we've had of this kind since 1994, and a crime bill that back when Joe Biden was a senator, he had uh, been working for. By the way, Biden is very enthusiastic about this compromise. They are hoping to have final language of this bill uh, together with the 10 Democrats who helped to write it and the 10 Republicans to have all this done by Friday. It would be reassuring, it seems to me, to the public at large and, and probably a great improvement politically strengthening, particularly for the Republican Party as they prepare for what is expected to be a big sweeping victory. 1-800-955-1776. We will be right back on The Medved Show. Kudos for having the best show on radio. The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Now's the time to join the millions of Americans who have changed the quality of their sleep with my pillow. You're listening to The Mighty Michael Medved Show. And on The Michael Medved Show, talking about the framework on uh, gun safety, it is a, um, when you look at the the kinds of things that I think people are, are greatly afraid of, which uh, have to do with confiscation or buybacks or basically taking away uh, firearms that people have purchased legally. They are law-abiding. They have no violations. They have no reason to be stripped of their, of their weapons. Uh, this bill that is before Congress is not that. What we were talking about before about the... Um, there was called the boyfriend loophole. The uh, New York Times explains it this way: is the outline includes a provision to address what is known as the boyfriend loophole, which would prohibit people from owning guns if they had been convicted of domestic violence against a dating partner, or were subject to a domestic violence restraining order from one. That's where a court looks at your behavior and says, no, don't come near this person. If you have that kind of order against you, well, then you're not eligible under this bill to get firearms for yourself. Uh, currently, only domestic abusers who were married to, living with, or the parent of a child with a victim are barred from having a firearm. This would apply to uh, someone who also has a domestic violence problem just with a girlfriend. Now, would it apply to somebody who had a, a problem uh, with, a, uh, uh, with a male being victimized by a female? Sure. Uh, 
But does that generally happen? No. I mean, when you talk about the number of temporary restraining orders, TROs, that go to people who are male against uh, protecting them against uh, protecting females against a male partner, that is almost 100 percent rather than male partners who need protection against females. Though that can happen, too. Uh, Jerry in Lacey, Washington, you're on the Michael Medved Show. Hi, Michael. This is uh, Jerry. Thanks for taking my call. It's pretty exciting. First time I've ever called into a radio show. And Well, I'm very flattered. To... Thank you. Glad, very glad to hear from you. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so one of the things in this um, big debate of, about firearms and is that we don't really seem to have any conversation about what consequences might be for people who commit crimes. Um, I think of mass shooters. They just seem to disappear. We've seemed to have forgotten about the cap capital punishment. Um, and I wonder if there was any conversation about that in any of the legislation. Uh, actually, I don't think there is. And I'll, I'll tell you why. It's, it, you're right. We don't hear about it that much because very frequently uh, people are are killed. Uh, I mean, they are killed as part of the process because they sometimes kill themselves. Sometimes they're killed in showdowns with uh, police officers or first responders. And uh, one of the things that we also have sort of lost track of is that some of the mass shootings that occur recently, as just two days ago, we had the anniversary of that mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Florida, which was, remember that gay nightclub where there were 49 people who were killed? And that was a terrorist act. That was somebody who claimed to be in touch with uh, ISIS. And I do think that uh, Dylan Roof, who committed that evil, evil, racist, neo-Confederate jerk who killed nine people at Bible study in Charleston, He's still alive and waiting, awaiting final sentencing. And uh, Nicholas Cruz, the killer at Parkland High School, he's still alive. And uh, do I think it would be appropriate for people with particularly hideous crimes to have more, uh, more rapid as possible and uh, more decisive, uh, and decisive including the death penalty? Uh, capital punishment uh, consequences? Yeah, I do. Uh, don't you? Or wouldn't you favor if this th this person was taken alive in Buffalo, uh, Peyton Jaron, uh, the killer at the supermarket, he's alive. And who knows how long uh, it will be before he is brought to justice. And that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, exactly. I feel like we need to have both sides of this management of of access to guns by people who are unstable, but also consequences for significant consequences and rapid for those who um, do commit these heinous crimes so that those of us who are law abiding can continue to um, uh, freely have access to our, our rights under the Second Amendment. So. No, no, I, I appreciate it. Now, your balanced point, it makes me think of, uh, I've mentioned this on the air before, but the, uh, the one case that I, I know most about because it was a friend and a neighbor, um, 
who was killed in her home uh, by somebody who had committed his first homicide when he was, I think, 14 or 15. He had attacked a prison guard while he was in prison, and uh, he had just been released from prison when he murdered our friend uh, with um, uh, multiple knife wounds and then and raped her after he killed her. And he's out. I mean, that was years ago. He ended up serving, uh, but he served less than 10 years. And that is ridiculous, especially when he's a multiple times killer. And that that is, of course, the best argument for capital punishment is it's very, very difficult. They were about to let Sirhan Sirhan out of prison. And fortunately, that was stopped by in one of his best moments of his governorship by Governor Newsom in California. Appreciate the call. Um, we, uh, when you talk about making progress on uh, this, this kind of issue, nobody believes or should believe that a, uh, a change like this is going to all of a sudden make the crime rate go down visibly and spectacularly. But I think Chuck Schumer said something that is sane and right, is that even if this framework, even if this reform saves one life, and it seems to me it's very likely it will save more than one life, uh, it, uh, it is very much worth doing. One thing they can point to is with this framework, they are... are requiring extra background checks and analysis and testing and measures for someone below the age of 21 uh, getting a, a, a gun and special attention for that age group between 18 and 21. That would have prevented both of the two recent mass killers in Buffalo and in Uvalde, both of whom were just 18, and both of whom had just recently gotten the guns with which they killed a total of, what is it? It's a total of 31 people. Uh, we will be right back on the Medved Show. From politics to pop culture and from coast to coast, this is the Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved outrageous what's going on out here. The Michael Medved Show. One of the changes I think that has made this deal possible, the framework for gun safety reform as it's called, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the changes has been uh, basically I, I think the result of a little bit of self-examination on the part of people on the left who are very, very upset about guns and about violence, they say, but at the same time have been talking about defunding the police and giving less resources to police. And the, the point about this is that if you want to take guns away from dangerous criminals, from people who are mentally very, very troubled, uh, people who are unstable, people with criminal records. If you want to do all of that, if you want to enforce those rules, how are you going to do it? Social workers? 
I mean, really, you need cops. And it's not just uh, pro-cop propaganda that's talking about it. It's common sense. Uh, there was a terrific piece by Matthew Iglesias. It was a syndicated column. And Matthew Iglesias is no conservative, but he's challenging the liberals. How can liberals go out there and say, we need to crack down on guns? We need to do things like uh, uh, Bloomberg and Giuliani did in New York when they were mayors of the city, uh, which was to authorize stop and frisk. I mean, basically, if uh, if there's someone make determine whether or not he or she has a gun on her, if they appear to be in a dangerous situation or with a dangerous background. And the fact that uh, there might be a racial disproportion in in that kind of activity is a reflection of the fact that there are, is, are a disproportionate number of people of color who are the victims of violent crime. And if you want to reduce that victimhood, you, you have to go after the source of the violence. And the source of the violence isn't a gun with little legs and little arms of its own. It's uh, the, the people who are misusing and abusing those guns for the most evil purposes imaginable. There's a terrific column that appeared this weekend in the Los Angeles Times. And the Los Angeles Times is, is a uh, center-left newspaper. It's a liberal newspaper. And Danny Westneed is a liberal columnist, self-described. But here's what he says, which I think is so much noteworthy and worth paying attention to. He says, Seattle has been engaged in a pitched, unresolved debate for two years now about policing, about how hard or soft we want the cops to go after crime, or if we want cops anymore at all. But at the same time, Seattle now finds itself going backward fast on the one issue where liberals usually can agree, guns. Nobody talks tougher on guns than the left. We want to regulate them, seize them, control them, even ban them. The uncomfortable part of this stance is, who is going to carry all this out, though, if not the police? Police who are stopping, searching, interfacing, all the things various city actors have understandably said they are most skeptical that police can do safely and without racial bias. Recently, writes Danny Westneed, he says, recently... I wrote about how Washington State's aggressive gun control laws, which ban AR-15 gun sales to people under age 21 and also institute a 10-day waiting period, would likely have prevented the recent Buffalo and Texas mass shootings because both were committed by 18-year-olds who had legally just bought their guns. What they don't prevent are the types of gun crime that Seattle is awash in right now where drug dealers, gang members, or others steal guns or pick them up on a simple, uh, ample black market. This past week, Seattle released data showing the city is in the midst of a historic shooting spree in its neighborhoods. There were 65 shots fired incidents in May, making the worst month of May for gun crime in recent years by far, exceeding May 2017 by 41%. Already 63 people have been wounded on Seattle's streets uh, this year, and another 15 killed by gunfire. And uh, he then says, every time I've written recently about rising crime in the city, I get progressive pushback, people saying it's hyped or that I'm pushing 
propaganda. Well, crime is not up. This is catnip for Fox News. Right-wingers, wrote one uh, reader, after I noted that Seattle had its most violent start to a year in 30 years. Quote, you're a bootlicker for Seattle cops. Another remarked, why don't you title your next column, The Real Crime is Me Having to Look at All This Poverty Around Me. I realize it's awkward for, for Seattle and the liberal project right now that crime here is soaring, but it is. Acting like it isn't is no better than when right-wingers in Idaho pretended last year that their hospitals weren't triaging medical care. Seattle's spike is coinciding with the cratering of police staffing at a time when both activists and the city council have urged less policing, not more. The anti-police politics didn't cause the crime rave. The best guess from experts is that the isolating forces of the pandemic did. But at a minimum, it's now hamstringing the city's ability to respond. Come on, Seattle, he writes. Shootings are up 75%. This is not normal. Are we going to do something about it? When Mayor Bruce Harrell gets asked this question, he talks about ending the unauthorized homeless encampments where, now listen to this, 20% of the shootings have been occurring. He's right, but this gets him accused of criminalizing poverty. 20% of the shootings in the city, they, they estimate they're like 6,000. They estimate that they're a half of 1% of the residents of the city live in these homeless encampments. And that half of 1% of the population has 20% of all the shootings? Are you kidding? No, they're not kidding. This past week, two Seattle City Council members, Tammy Morales and uh, Teresa Mosqueda, both of whom backed defunding the police, pilloried police for prioritizing uh, officers to homeless encampments instead of uh, to sexual assault investigations. They're prioritizing the homeless encampments because that's where the shootings are. That's where the killings are. But Harrell also wants to change the state's preemption of gun laws so he can push stricter gun ordinances at the local level. He wants to ban guns in city parks. That would get at some of the homeless encampments. He wants city authority to seize guns from people who are intoxicated or on drugs. All of it sounds like a liberal wish list, but also like police potentially doing frisk-level interventions out on the streets. Is Seattle going to be okay with that? Well, Seattle has to be. The rest of the country has to be. Otherwise, none of these new gun laws that people are passing, none of the new school safety laws that people are passing, and yes, that is part of what the Congress is facing, is increased funding for mental health and for cracking down on people who are dangerous to themselves and to others. Because remember, the majority, and it's a big majority, of gun deaths in this country are suicides, which we also have to take care of. So uh, where do we go from here? Where we go from here is that, look, conservatives are now going along with a little bit of tightening and a little bit of more rational approaches to some of the gun regulations and some of the very dangerous people in society. But that means that people on the left have to go along with more resources for the police who are going to enforce all of this. Because if you don't do that, it's just utterly meaningless. It's just political grandstanding, which does no good at all for actually making the streets safer, cleaner, and, and allowing 
prosperity and desirable neighborhoods to flourish. Uh, we will be right back on the Michael Medved Show with more contradictions in uh, current disputes. Coming up on the Medved Show. Entertain your brain every day. And the madness now. On the Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show talking about the ongoing issue of guns and the apparent progress that has been made in a surprisingly bipartisan way with a framework for some uh, gun safety reform. Now, with all of that, I'll tell you some, somewhere else where progress is clearly being made is um, Bill Maher has gotten so good at pointing out the hypocrisy of the left and particularly of people in the media in the way that they cover various subjects and actually talking now about guns and the idea that Americans are uh, concerned about the fact that we live in a country with more guns than people in it. Yeah, we do with about 400 million guns in private hands in this country. Uh, Bill Maher points out that um, Hollywood uh, <laughs> uh, may be a great institution, and he's part of it, but uh, it, it's worth taking note of just how violent uh, some of our entertainment on television and in movies is today. Uh, listen, clip 13. When liberals scream, do something after a mass shooting, why aren't we also dealing with the fact that the average American kid sees 200,000 acts of violence on screens before the age of 18? And that, according to the FBI, one of the warning signs of a potential school shooter is a fascination with violence-filled entertainment. It's funny, Hollywood is the wokest place on earth in every other area of social responsibility. But when it comes to the unbridled romanticization of gun violence, crickets. Weird. The only thing we don't call a trigger is the one that actually has a trigger. Uh, if you make a movie today, you can't show bullying, fat shaming, slut shaming, girl chasing, gay baiting, ethnic stereotypes, or underage hookups where drinking is involved. You know what we used to call comedies. <laughs> but those things are bad, and everyone knows you can't platform bad things. You know what you can still platform? One guy who's the hero getting over a grudge by mowing down a multitude of human beings. Okay, look, he's, he's clearly correct. And, and nobody is saying that somebody sees one uh, image on screen and then comes, uh, goes out immediately and says, I want to imitate that. It's what... Uh, what movies and and television entertainment, which is, uh, I mean, can be in, in some cases even more violent than what you see in films, that what it does is it portrays a very dangerous world. And if uh, the numbers are correct, and I think if anything they're understated about watching 200,000 incidents of violence and 
very often deadly violence before you reach the age of 18. If that's correct, then, then your view of the world around you, which comes disproportionately from the hours and hours and hours that people spend watching a violent entertainment, that view of the world, by the way, it's, for people who are concerned about gun sales, you know that that uh, when you have films that show gunplay and a great deal of it with sometimes very advanced and very cool weapons, uh, that uh, helps the sales a great deal. And uh, it's it's astonishing that people in the movie business don't acknowledge that. As Marr points out, this is Bill Marr again from Friday night. Listen, clip 14. Now, the usual suspects on the far left will say that I'm delivering some sort of conservative rant here or that I'm undermining gun control. No, it's neither. It's just what's real. There's a pie chart of why mass shootings happen, and we don't know exactly how much of each of the pieces is responsible, but the major ones are mental health, that is, broken young men who feel like losers and want the world to hurt like they do. Easy access to guns. Kids having smartphones, which makes losers feel even worse because of the bullying and all the fake lives that look better than theirs. And yes, yes, crazy amounts of gun violence in movies and TV. We don't show movie characters smoking anymore because it might look cool and influence children, but you're telling me these cool dudes don't influence them? They say the success of Top Gun Maverick will be a great boost to Navy pilot recruitment. Great. But then you can't say it's just a movie when it's this. Okay, I, I was um, in a, uh, and this is years ago, so when my book Hollywood vs. America came out, and uh, I was in a panel that was sponsored, I believe it was sponsored by the Creative Coalition. And uh, I, I was on a panel with a very prominent producer whose name I won't mention because for reasons will become clear in a moment. And uh, making the same kind of points that Bill Maher was making right here, and uh, this is back in 1993. And uh, I was making my point, and then the producer came back, he said, look, uh, uh, Medved just criticized us for all the bad things we do, he doesn't give us credit for all the good things we do. And he talked about his most recent film, which had major stars in it. Uh, they were police officers, police officers known to be tough, violent, uh, sometimes murderous. But uh, he said, look, we put in a scene, and we did it deliberately, where they're about to go off on a chase scene, and then they look at each other, and they shake heads, and they both put on their seat belts. And he said, that scene probably saved millions of lives because it showed our heroes putting on seat belts. It encouraged people to put on seat belts. And my answer was, yeah, but what about all the garroting and uh, dismemberment and stabs and gunshots into the eye and everything else that's in that same movie? In other words, you think with something good, they're going to follow it. They're going to copycat putting on seat belts, but they won't copycat blowing somebody's head off. Bill Maher pointed uh, this out about taking vengeance on screen. Listen, this is 15. Like every school shooter, our movie heroes are grievance collectors. And when it comes to action movies, there's one story. 
He was a nice guy, but they pushed him too far, and now it's on. They took my daughter. They killed my father. They killed my fiance. They killed my family. They killed my family again. They killed my puppy. <laughs> All of which doesn't just create a culture of violence, but a culture of justified violence. Liberals hated it when Kyle Rittenhouse, they hated him, but somehow the liberal capital of the world is okay with making 500 movies about vigilantes. They hate it when gun people say it takes a good guy with a gun to stop a bad guy with a gun, but then they endlessly produce movies with that exact plot. Now, thanks, one guy. Okay, uh, Bill Maher, th this is so spot on, and it's so so much relevant to... I don't know, work that I've been doing and things that I've been saying for a very long time. Uh, one of the points that people always make is that, well, look, the idea that there is a direct relationship between violence and imagery in the media, uh, it's ridiculous because most people who watch violent movies don't do anything wrong. Yeah, but most people who watch a Lexus ad on TV never buy that car, won't even think about buying that car, can't even dream of it. And yet, if you get one out of 100,000 people who are watching an ad for Lexus to want to buy that car or any other car, Mercedes or a Cadillac or anything, it, 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 you don't need to have everybody following. You can make a difference. You can ch change the world right. And what Jeremy just said is exactly right. There's also the question of product placement in movies. They pay literally millions of dollars to get products including McDonald's and Coca-Cola and uh, and certain kinds of cars and guns to have them placed in films because they know that some people will will be affected by it not everybody the fact that the violence that you see on screen and no it's not true there isn't a, a tremendously high murder rate among movie critics I mean for people like me who end up watching five movies a week uh, yeah, you would think, no, it's not that simple. But it particularly for people who are vulnerable to the collective impact of a portrayal of a mean, dangerous world that requires violence as a response, that really is something that responsible people ought to uh, be more careful about monitoring for our children and frankly for ourselves. Coming up, what about monitoring those hearings this morning? Uh, we'll talk about that and their impact with John Yu, professor of law and great legal analyst in this greatest nation on God's green earth.